include. But when I sat down and was actually putting ideas on paper, all these other thoughts came through that kept wanting to uh, get their, make their way into the presentation. And I realized what was happening is I was kind of reflecting on, on the retreat and my time here and thinking of all of the things that had been helpful uh, for me as I taught this retreat. Because I don't know if you realize it or not, it's a retreat for us too. And uh, we also go into the seclusion of the retreat and are immersed in this Dharma world. And I learn a lot when I teach retreats like this. I learn a lot from my fellow teachers who are so wise, but I also learn a lot from you uh, in the interviews and the sharing that we do there. And I'm, I'm constantly inspired and surprised by what I learn. And I, and I also even learn from myself, because I find myself <laughs> saying things, oh, is that what I think? Or, you know, that was a good way of putting that. So it's always good to surprise yourself. So I, tonight I'm going to touch on a few of those, those things that uh, stood out for me as being helpful um, during the interviews that I had with people or things that have been discussed here in the hall. And so I'll meander a little bit through some quite important topics and just touch on them kind of lightly uh, through this evening. And where I wanted to start with is one of the things that I so appreciate about the Buddha's teaching. I, as far as I know, I, cons I consider it to be uh, unique, could be wrong, but it's his blend of the personal and the impersonal. This constant pointing again and again to this relative world in which we live and operate in and how to bring skillfulness to that, purification and cultivation to that, and the impersonal, the transcendent, this other view of reality. And this weaving is usually referred to as the two truths, the, the truth of the relative and the transcendent, the personal and the impersonal. And any time you read the Buddha's words or hear his teachings, you'll see how both of those are always woven through. In some ways, they're inseparable. And um, exploring that for ourselves, exploring the relationship between those two and not landing in one or the other is really the heart of our practice and the paradox of, of our spiritual practice. The Buddha always said that it's not just about faith or believing. It's certainly not about just being a good person. He said, again, some of these lines uh, I heard, you know, people have said before, but I think they're important, so I'm going to be repeating them here. He said something like, the reason I was successful in my quest for enlightenment is that I was never satisfied with merely wholesome states of mind. And that not being satisfied fueled his quest, his inquiry to such depths that his mind opened to the ultimate truth, to, to the transcendent. Yet at the same time, throughout his teachings, he emphasizes sila, or ethical conduct. He emphasizes the brahma-viharas, these qualities of the heart that relate in a very personal way to our emotional life and the life of others. So it's this weaving this balance of the two truths, this, this holding of both is, again, 
can't think of the word. Exemplified. Exemplified, thank you. My brain stops every now and then. Exemplified by this um, quote. Again, I think someone's already said it, Padmasambhava, but it's one that, that I use a lot. Padmasambhava said something like, my view, and by that he means the scope of his mind, his, his, just his whole world view. Um, my view is as vast as the sky, yet my care and respect for the laws of karma are as fine an action, or as fine as a grain of sampo, a barley flour. And so there's just this openness, and yet there's this. There's this day-to-day stuff in which we live out our lives. And if you, it, it, the, there are many teachings that put much more of the emphasis on the emptiness side of things, on the, uh, the non-dual teachings, and there's just this um, belief that that's where it's at. But I've heard uh, Tibetan teachers especially refer to that as one-legged emptiness. And it's kind of, you can get the sense, it's not balanced. We can't rest there. Well, not rest is not a good word. But we can't, um, there's not a sense of a foundation for our practice. If we hold too much to the emptiness, to the kind of there's nothing there, nothing matters, let everything go. But if we cling to the relative, if we stay caught in the world of me, mine, I, me, and mine, self, and other, then there's not really the possibility of freedom. So somehow we're always negotiating this. Again, Nagarjuna, that great um, second century monk philosopher, said, uh, those who believe only in emptiness are incorrigible. It's kind of like, you know, you, you can't deal with them. They're just stuck in this fixed view. And what he said is necessary. He said, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas hinges on two truths, partial truth of the world and truths which are sublime. Without knowing how they differ, you cannot know the deep. Without relying on conventions, you cannot disclose the sublime. Without intuiting the sublime, you cannot experience freedom. So it's really a weaving of both, recognizing they're both necessary for true freedom to be experienced and open to. And it's really important to see that one doesn't deny the other. In a way, nothing changes. It's just a different view or different perspective. And again, in an interview, I came up with this analogy, which I liked, so I'll say it here. It's like the view of the pen. Most of the time, we look at it like this, and we see a long shaft. This one's gray. It's a pen. But if you look at it head on, what I see is some rings of circle and a little silver ball at the center of it. If you just drew that, you probably wouldn't recognize it as a pen. Yet it's as much a pen as this view. It's the same different perspective. Nothing changes, yet everything changes, depending on the view. And I don't know if you remember, you probably don't, many weeks ago, I sat here, and, and one of my early talks was on the spiritual journey, um, using the Eightfold Path as representative of a path of, a, of this sense of movement, of creativity in our practice. And in that talk, I, I took the theme of the way this, the Eightfold Path is often broken down into the three baskets of sila samadhi panya, sila ethical conduct, samadhi uh, concentration, and panya or wisdom. 
And what's interesting is that's usually the shorthand for the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya. Yet if you look at the way it's laid out in a linear fashion, the first of the path factors is that of right view or right understanding. And so, again, there's a way in which uh, two different ways of seeing this path beginning. One with sila, ethical conduct, very relative, interactive set of practices. Another way, completely valid, also the way the path is listed, is this path factor of right view, which is impersonal, which says this is the way things are. Things are impermanent, conditioned, subject to um, suffering, and there's nothing solid at the core. So again, this, this understanding of the two truths is woven, woven right there in the way we understand and practice with the Eightfold Path. So I want to talk tonight about the first two path factors, which are in the wisdom basket. They're at the beginning of the path, and again, because you know the path is circular, it's not like we have to start there and perfect those and then we move on. There's a way in which we're always refining. But the first two path factors are right view or understanding and then right intention. And again, here is this reflection of the two truths. Right view or understanding is this is the way things are. This is the nature of reality. If you look, look closely with clear seeing, this is what you'll see. Right intention in the, the path description is the intention towards these beautiful qualities of mind, of renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. And again, to see how this impersonal view, right view, leads to wise intention, leads to this very relative expression of how it's helpful to be in the world, how it's skillful to be in the world. So again, this weaving's true, woven through, and we see how they actually support each other. In a way, um, unique, but not separate, that we need them both. So right view samaditi, and again, we this word sama that prefaces all of the path factors, uh, we often translate as right, but it's not a great translation because of the, the sense we always have of right and wrong. It means this is good and that's bad. It actually means more true or, or um, wise, conducive to liberation. It's that which is helpful for us in our practice and our path. So the first of these path factors, right view, is understanding, usually defined as understanding the three characteristics, you know, that things are impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not self, um, understanding the law of karma, conditionality, seeing dependent origination. You can see they're all about this impersonal nature of things, and understanding the Four Noble Truths. I was a little confused by that, because it's like, you've got to understand one, you've got to understand the other. It's a circular reference field there. but it kind of works. The one I want to hold home in on, as I said, I'm just going to pick from some of these rather large, complex teachings, is that of the Four Noble Truths. Because it's such a great map for our practice in the big picture, but even in the moment-to-moment -moment experience. And to really see the Four Noble Truths not as something you believe, they're practices 
that we need to put into effect, that we need to undertake. And the first of the truths we've talked about a lot is this truth of dukkha. Usually translated as suffering, again, we've said that this is a broad and perhaps too um, limited a view of what this means. A couple of words I, I came across today that I, I thought were helpful in this understanding of what this word dukkha means. Unsteady or disquieted. Again, a little more subtle in the meaning. And to see that it's not, you know, anguish, it's not arrows and knives in the heart. It really is this sense of something more pervasive than that, more thoroughgoing throughout our lives. And because I, I was reading up on this, I came across a book, um, some excerpts or quotes from a book by this guy, Dr. Brazier, who wrote a book called The Feeling Buddha. And he had a whole thing where he said he didn't feel the translation of dukkha as, as suffering was helpful. He said a better translation of the word is that things happen to us. That's a pretty subtle translation, that things happen to us. But what's the point about that is, yeah, they happen and we don't expect them or we don't want them, that we're not in control. And it reminds me of this bumper sticker. Can you think of the one I'm thinking of? <laughs> no. Shit happens. This is, this is the first noble truth. It's what he's pointing to. <laughs> but it's about all these levels of disquietude or dis-ease, expectations. Have you had or are having the retreat you've expected? Was even today what you wanted or expected? It's always changing. And you know, I, I've just had to laugh how many of you have come into interviews kind of shaking your head, just saying, it's always changing. We're like, yes, yes, this is what, this is what we've been talking about. And you, there's a way you get it on retreat. And I often you know, start an interview, how are, you, how are you doing? How are you? And the person will wisely say, when? You know, when do you, <laughs> now, five minutes ago, a half hour ago? Always changing. This is the nature. This is what we see when we're on retreat. We see this um, evanescence of experience and that we can't land anywhere with it. We can't control it in that way. And as I said, each of the truths has practices. They're not just beliefs. The truth, the practice for the first truth is that suffering, dukkha, should be understood. And again, I read a, a little explication of that where the word in Pali literally means to stand under, like standing under a waterfall. And I thought that was such a great image for what happens when we really understand dukkha. We stand under. If you've ever st uh, stood under a waterfall, you're just completely immersed, and there's a pounding kind of nature to it. You can feel that. Have you felt that on retreat, just standing under that waterfall of experience and feeling the impact on us? It's, and what, we, what, what comes to my mind when I, when I open to that image is what it cultivates, this sense of acceptance or patience. Forbearance is a word that is used a lot in, Buddha's te in the Buddhist teachings and is not one that's given much... Um, uh, or emphasis in our culture, forbearance. But we also see that, yes, there's suffering, 
But if we open to it, we don't engage or don't, don't shoot at ourselves the second arrow. There's the first arrow of just the suffering. Can we open to that? If we can open to it, then there's not the second arrow that's the arrow of being a victim or blaming ourselves or others. Why me? It shouldn't be happening. Why is it like this? It just is, and we stand under it, and we bear it. This is the practice and the truth of suffering. And then the second noble truth is that the cause of suffering is desire, tanha, craving. And it's always been interesting to me that the Buddha picked that to point to as the cause. Why not aversion? Aversion seems so much to cause so much more suffering in the world. Uh, All the movements of anger and cruelty and war and hatred or delusion that's really so fundamental. But I think what he was pointing to was the, the fact that we get lost in desire that it's so beguiling and is so close to our experience, to our sense of self, that we don't see it. And that's why we act on it so often. And again, so many of you coming in in, in, in the interviews talking about seeing this force of desire as a physical energy, seeing the eye or the ear or the tongue or whatever land on something, and just this energy arise. And, totally with that expression, this sense of self that gets created. And how when it's not noticed, boy, is it solid. You know, this wanting of whatever it is that's out there that we want. And yet in the seeing, in the recognition of that movement, that energy, that physicality, it's like you poke a hole in the balloon and thump. The air, hot air just goes out of it and it's gone. And there's that, that where you go, what was that? Who was that? What, what was, you realize, oh, I just let go. Through just the seeing, not out of pushing away or aversion, just the seeing. And then we look, and what do we do? We pick it up again because it's so enticing. It's so beguiling. And we look at, oh, look what I did. I picked it up again. And we go, no, I don't want to. Oh, yeah, no, I, oh, yeah. And we do it over and over again. I see it in myself. I have this recurring fantasy. Uh, All my different roles here at Spirit Rock, I'm on the design committee where we're really envisaging what it would be like to build out this retreat center. And you know, there's a way in which this portion up here is lovely. Down there below the hill, many of you were in this building today, it's a bunch of trailers stuck together that we originally got a permit for five years for 20 years ago. You know, the county did extend the permits, but they're just trailers stuck together. They leak, they're drafty, the rodents have invaded them, they're, they're inefficient, they're cramped, they, they just don't serve us or anyone who comes here. And so, it's <laughs> the so way it is, Yatabuta. So my vision always is, wouldn't it be great if someone just gave us $20 million? (laughs) And then we could build out, you know, I'm driving in just, oh, if they gave us, we'd do the new kitchen dining hall that would fit everyone and the community hall that would just really serve community and serve the people who come and we'd have new um, 
staff spaces so that they had somewhere pleasant, even healthy to work in as opposed to where they're working right now. And it's just so wonderful. And I'm driving, oh, wouldn't it be great? And then I realize it's a fantasy. It's not happening. It's certainly not happening now. <laughs> and so I let it drop. And then the thought comes, but wouldn't it be great? Yes, it would be Oh, And I go, it's a fantasy. And when I start to really see what's happening, I see that there's the pleasure of the fantasy and that excitement and energy that lifts up around it. But what it actually does to me is make me dissatisfied, as you just saw from my dis description a few moments ago, with what is, and frustrated and, and less motivated to keep doing what I need to do to make that vision happen. Because I dangle out this fantasy that's completely not true. And I see how I want to pick it up. I want to pick it up because it's so pleasant and that it's not serving me. And it's just, we see it again and again. And when we see that clearly, we let go. And that's the third noble truth, that there is an ending to that creation of self, that indulgence, that, that, that getting lost in whatever which we've picked up. As we've said again and again, the Buddha never talked about suffering without talking about the end of suffering. And I know that you have all had those moments of ending of suffering. Not completely, not forever, but what it's like when it ends and the mind is clear and the heart is open. We know those places. We know it. So the second of the path factors is um, samasankapa, wise intention. And we began this retreat. I, I'm doing, as I said, I was doing a lot of reflecting as I was putting this together and seeing you know, the, the, the pieces that are coming together for me. We began the retreat talking about intention. It's what got us all here to practice. It's what's keeping us going. It's what's kept us going all these days. Carol gave that great talk where she ended with that, um, the myth really, it's very mythical, archetypal of Frodo in Lord of the Rings and how he had to keep, keep re reinvigorating his intention. And it wasn't, oh yeah, this is great, let's keep going. It was like, no, it's harder and it's harder all the time. This is what we are, this is the situation we're in. And I told a few stories about my pilgrimage journey uh, to India, to the holy sites. One of the things we did while we were traveling around was read a lot of books about the Buddha's life and the different people um, of that time, about the sites and how they were discovered. And a big part of that discovery of the sites, because Buddhism was lost in, lost in India for hundreds of years, was the story of the pilgrims who came after the time of the Buddha, and particularly two Chinese pilgrims who came in like the 12th and 13th century. And their journals um, and what they saw really recreated what was there and what got lost in the, in the time after that. Hundreds of pilgrims set out from China for, to make that pilgrimage. And most of them died on the way just reading what they had to go through. And uh, we only have the journals of two of them who made it and, and whose journals survived. They had an enormous impact 
both in India, but definitely when they went back to China, and still to this day because of their descriptions of what, um, what they saw. But just reading about what they went through, any time Guy and I would start to get a little grumpy about the conditions, we'd just say, remember the Chinese pilgrims. And the clarity of their intent, I mean, what would it take to set out in the 12th or 13th century and walk to India from China? Uh, you know, over the Himalayas, through deserts. There's some deserts, like the Hundred Mile Desert, that, you know, I, I just, my imagination strewn with bones of people who didn't make it. And they kept going. You know, this is the, the challenge or the, the, the what happens when there's intention. When the Buddha talks about, or in the teachings, when we talk about intention, though, there's really two meanings. And I'd be talking the, just the, these few moments about the first meaning, which is chaitana, or intentional volition, intentional actions that create karma. And then later I'll talk about the classic um, path factor of intention, which is that of renunciation and goodwill um, and harmlessness. But this, this uh, chaitanya, or intentional volition, volitional action, again, talked a lot about how it's central to what we do here in practice, of course, to our life. It, 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 as the Tibetans say, all of our practice, our life, rests on the tip of intention. That's where it all starts and, and uh, comes from. And so many times, uh, one of the things, especially towards the ends of retreats, that people will ask is, you know, when I go home, how do I do X? And the X is whatever. Learn this, study that, you know, deepen this. A classic one is have a daily sitting practice. It's all like, and, they, and they want me to say, well, what you need to do is this, this, and this, and then it'll work for you. But what I say is it doesn't work like that. Unless you can clarify what your intention is, why you want to do that, why you want to have a daily sitting practice, it's not going to happen. Because unless the intention is clear, it won't come out of any amounts of shoulds. You know, if I was a good Buddhist, I would, or if I was really sincere, I would. It's got to be out of some deeper motivation than that. And we're making intentions all the time. This teaching we gave as a practice is just to start to notice on this subtle way how our whole stream of our day of practice is one intention after the other. And if we notice that, there's that choice point. There's that possibility of seeing whether, what, whether the action we're, we're maybe embarking on is one we want to continue. Intention happening all the time. Why not clarify it so that at least you're acting out of intentions that are developing something that you care about, that is skillful for you? Sylvia Borstein, one of our good friends and teachers, says about everything she undertakes, she always asks, to what end? To what end? And it's really just a helpful question to keep in mind. I know in myself, I see in my friends, you know, there's areas in my life, our lives, where we have clear intention, and areas where there's kind of vague intention but not so clear. It doesn't happen. You know, if you want to take a, you know, start an exercise program, learn a language. I've seen, you know, I've really wanted to learn Italian. And I've started about three or four times. 
it doesn't, you know, you get through the first tape or the first CD and you learn to count to 10 and that's about it because there's not that clarity of intention, that clarity of purpose that, that allows that thing to continue. And of course we can't control everything. I'm not talking about forcing with will or, or creating this really strong effort. But unless we know what's important for us, unless we really clarify, it won't manifest. It's, it's just a kind of fact of life. And as Goethe says, whatever you can do or dream you can do, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. And you've probably experienced that when you've created some intention for yourself, some grand uh, fulfillment of something that's really important for you. And you don't know how it's really going to come together, but it's only once you start to put that first step on the path, all of these factors come together to make it possible. We really have to see that and see how doing retreats like this kind of things drop away that are not so relevant, not so important. And we really do clarify what's important for us out of an intensive period of practice um, like this. I know for me, I, I really have seen the, the, the power of intention. Again, looking back to when I began my practice in the early 80s and just the impact of that first retreat I sat. My first retreat was with uh, S.N. Goenka in India. I had no idea what I was getting in for. I, you know, I'd read some books on meditation and someone said, you want to learn to meditate? That will, that's what you should do. And I, I made my way. I was living in, uh, Bodga, uh, in um, Dar uh, McLeod Gunge at the time and uh, sort of immersing myself in the Buddhist world, but just through books, just through reading. Made my way down to Jaipur. I had a lot of adventures just even. I didn't even really know where the retreat was being held. It was one of those things where I just had this idea I should go. And if I went, I would find it. I, you know, Jaipur, it's a big place. But somehow I you know, found people and asked and, and, and found my way to the retreat. And it was amazing. I mean, it was one of the most painful things I've ever done to this day, sitting that retreat. You know, he's a, he's a powerful and, and really demanding teacher, but just getting a taste of the possibility of the ending of suffering. And even, even more than that, being told there was a path, it was a revelation to me. And from that moment on, that was, that was the, the defining or the, the, um, the intention that I, I guided my life by. And I remember at the end of this retreat, you know, in that space, end of retreats, and someone saying, oh yeah, you know, I try to do a retreat once or twice a year, and I remember, you know, in this so much hubris, once or twice a year, how pathetic, you know. I'm going to be constantly on retreat, and just, oh, you know, this is my life from here on, and I'll ordain, and I'll do all this. And then, of course, life happens, and I, it's not so easy to be a lay person and practice intensively and you know I had to make my way in the world but every decision I made every large decision I made from that point on was really how can I get closer to the Dhamma and my life really developed out of that I left India and went to England and the first thing I did was make my way to the retreat center that Christopher Titmus founded I'd, I'd practiced with him in Asia as well 
And um, I'd been traveling and picking my mail up at the Poste Restante, and I got a, you know, I'd uh, written to say, can I come to this retreat? They said, yes, come, there's a retreat starting next weekend. So come, come and, and join us. So I, again, backpack and make my way down on bus and train and, you know, hitchhiking and get to this retreat center. And I walk into the um, entryway there at East Farmhouse. And someone kind of looks at me a little funny and says, oh, you, we were, we were expecting you. I said, well, yeah, you know, come for the retreat. He goes, oh, you better come inside. And I thought, oh, what's, this is a little strange. What's going on? And as I walk in, this group of five or six people sitting by themselves in this big house all turn and look and go, oh, you. And what had happened, you know, it's like, what's going was the letter that had been written to me didn't have a date on it. And the retreat I was coming for began la the last weekend and ended that day. And not only that, um, they had their staff was all leaving because they only had two managers and they had finished their term and the new people weren't arriving for two weeks. They were closing up the whole retreat center. And they just said, I'm sorry, you have to go. And I was just so heartbroken. You know, I'd come all this way, and you know, I was traveling really cheaply then. It was a big expense and a big energy. I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, I'd just traveling on my own. And I'd so wanted to be in this Dharma community, in this environment. They said, sorry, you know, we're closing up. You know, normally maybe you could stay, but it just happens you've arrived on this day. We're closing the whole place down. I was just crestfallen and, you know, I just wandered off and, and uh, sat for a little bit. And when I came back and, and they said, you can, you know, hang around for a cup of tea or whatever, I came back in and they said, you know what, we thought about it. You can stay. I said, we're all leaving, but you can stay. So in, what they did was basically turn the whole place over to me. It was just a, a farmhouse. It's not a big center like this. But from having no retreat and nowhere to stay, I had this beautiful English farmhouse to spend the next two weeks in just practicing on my own. It was, again, you know, we never know. We're not in control. And because that happened, because they got to know me and they trusted me, I don't know why, to stay in this house and take care of it, um, I, I really got connected to the people there and so applied to be a manager. And then had to, when they all came back, I, I said, don't you need another manager right now? And they said, no, no, we have two. I said, don't you need three? No, no, we just need two. I had to leave. But when they wrote and said, we have a space, I just came right back. I was traveling through Europe with my boyfriend. He said, let's go to Czechoslovakia. He said, no, I'm going back. I'm going back to the Dumhut, back to this retreat center. And my life really unfolded out of those decisions, out of that intention to get close to the Dhamma. And a number of things happened as well after that. <laughs> that's, that's a short version. <laughs> well, I'm cutting. I'm cutting as I'm going. <laughs> And I'm sure you've all got your own stories that are like that, about how at some point you just made a decision. You know, how do I get closer to the Dhamma? How do I align my life with the Dhamma, align my values with the Dhamma? Well, the way the Buddha said to do that is this second path factor of wise intention. This is what he said we need to cultivate and develop to align with the Dhamma and to express a life of Dhamma. That's renunciation, goodwill, and harmlessness. 
this first practice of renunciation, really important to get. It's not sackcloth and ashes, giving up everything, but knowing what's truly important. Again, it's all around values and intention and being able to let the other stuff go. It's actually a practice with a lot of joy and freedom in it. As uh, Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world, but accepting that they go away. And it's really the opposite of clinging, of attachment, the second noble truth. Again, seeing how the, the teachings weave in together. And we never know what's going to open up when we let go of something. There's this great Zen poem, when my house burned down, I, I, I gained an unobstructed view of the night sky. When my house burned down, I gained an unobstructed view of the moonlit sky. We let go and something comes in its place. And so it's about developing a wise relationship, not just to things, to our experiences, looking at what do we need rather than what we want. But it's not just needs and wants on a material level. The biggest letting go, the most helpful letting go, is letting go of views and opinions, letting go of this sense of I'm right and others are wrong. There's this great book, um, came out a number of years ago, called The Material World. And it's such a great reflection on this theme of renunciation. What do we really need to be happy? And many of you probably know this book. These, this team of people, photographers, went around to all of these different parts of the world and kind of found um, a, a, a very culturally typical family of the culture and then had them go outside of their house, take a photograph with all of their possessions. So there's a photograph of this family in Bhutan with their copper pots and a few chests, a family from India with this wooden bed and everything they own is just on that bed and they're sitting on it. The American family, <laughs> it said under the caption, they had to get a cherry picker, you know, one of those big cranes to kind of elevate the family so they could get a big enough angle on the photograph to photograph all their possessions. It was a, a, a you know, t typical American family in Texas, t you know, parents, two kids, a dog, the minivan, the sports utility, and everything. And it said, um, yet the image still leaves out the refrigerator, freezer, the camcorder, the woodworking tools, the computer, the glass butterfly collection, the trampoline, the fishing. It, there's a lot not in, and they still couldn't contain it all. It's like, what do we really need? What do we really need? And not to sort of point the finger at this material culture, even though it is. In uh, Parade Magazine, a couple of weeks ago, it's my, you know, the magazine that comes with the Sunday paper. It's where I get the limited celebrity gossip that, uh, that I read, it comes from Parade. But they often have kind of uplifting articles about people's lives. And this is one entitled, Why We Gave Away Our Home. And it was a story of another American family who said, uh, start off by saying, we've achieved the American dream. You know, we just moved into this great big new house, a French colonial, not mansion, but you know, big home. We each had our own bedroom and a, a rec room and a dining room and all this. And they said, 
and the minivan with the DVD player in the back so when the kids were there, you know, no one talked, you all just w were in your own rooms playing your own games and doing your own thing and driving from here to there. And they said, we noticed we were getting unhappier and unhappier and less and less connected. And one day, the, the young girl in the family was really upset because she'd just been learning about the disparities that there are in the world, of how, how, how some people live in such poverty and hunger and, and distress. And the mother just said, well, what are you willing to give up? Your room, your house? And this young girl said yes to both. And it really started the whole family thinking about this. And they decided they would sell their house and buy one half the size and give that money to charity. That in and of itself is a big deal. But it said, they said it took them a year to decide what to do with the money. They took a year to investigate. And so as families, they sat together and read and discussed and, and, and argued about what's the best way to use this money. They learnt so much about each other in the world. And what they decided to spend the money on was um, the Hunger Project, a, a US-based nonprofit that works with villagers in Africa, Asia, and South America and helps them move from poverty to self-reliance. They said it's the best move they ever made. They're happier and it's transformed their lives from letting go, from renunciation. You've given up more than that in coming here. You know that simple room you've been staying in with a few coat hangers and your little cubby hole to put your stuff in? As you leave this retreat, whether it's now or in a month, notice what you pick up again. It's kind of like you've whitewashed everything. Everything is empty. Really pay attention to what it is, what it is you pick up. Again, Bhikkhu Bodhi says, Real renunciation is not a matter of compelling ourselves to give up things still inwardly cherished, but of changing our perspective on them so they no longer bind us. So pay attention. What is it you do or need to pick up again? The second of these wise intentions, as I said, this is a bit of a potpourri kind of talk, potpourri dharma, as someone would say, uh, all of these different facets, but really the, all of them, as I looked at them, oh yes, this has been important. This has been important for me on this retreat. The next one is that of goodwill, metta. I hope you've appreciated the Brahma Vihara practice and really seen how it's a, a great support to the work we do here and obviously in our lives and how we've emphasized that the most important place to express the metta is metta for yourself, that that's the foundation. The Buddha said this, this amazing quote, you can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself, and that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the entire universe, deserve your love and affection. What would that look like for you? To really take those words to heart, to, give your, to feel that you deserve your love and affection, are worthy of it. What stories about yourself would you have to let go of? What beliefs, what sense of limitation? You know, I don't deserve it, I'm not worthy. 
or maybe, you know, if I let go of this habit or take up that practice, then, you know, maybe I'd be lovable. But not right now, not, not like this. And it's so unhelpful. It's so narrowing. Because acceptance is really at the core of this practice, not just metta practice, but all our practice. It's really saying yes to life, yes to ourselves, yes to others, yes to our bodies, to our minds, to our experience. This sense of acceptance. And to, to see, as many of you had, have on this retreat, the, the pain of the judging mind, that the pain of the contraction that comes out of that. Um, I, I really see it as so important to, to work with this and to see that this sense of unworthiness is not some incidental sideshow to the, the, the real business of spiritual practice. To work with this and to, to totally turn it inside out is essential if we are going to deepen on this spiritual path, in this spiritual practice. So we need to look at this voice that says we're not good enough, we're not worthy, that, that is this obstacle to the meta feeling to ourselves, to others. And what I've seen in my own practice and in the, the reading that I've done about it is this judging voice, this judging tendency, as negative as it can seem, as, as painful as it can seem, always has a hook in it. There's always some amount very subtle or quite apparent of satisfaction in the judging. And until we understand that, we're going to continue it. So we need to challenge this judging voice and see how is it serving me or why do I think that it serves me to believe this about myself? I mean, really, why would we want to believe we're unworthy? Why? Why would we want to tell ourselves that we're unlovable? or, or um, that we hate ourselves. Really to challenge that, that voice that says those things to us. And see that the, the more that we travel on this path as we cultivate these wholesome states of mind, of, of kindness and compassion, of really standing in that place of truth, this voice of limitation doesn't serve us. It's, it's, a, it's an obstacle. It's the greatest hindrance to this opening. And so we need to see these judging thoughts for what they are as just another thought. With that clarity of mindfulness, with the clarity of intention, we can have that choice point where we don't choose to take it up, where we don't choose to believe it. And again, so many of you have talked about just seeing that letting that go, letting that obstacle go. There's a book I found helpful um, in this work of seeing the judging mind for what it is. It's Soul Without Shame by Byron Brown. And he says, the only real alternative to self-judgment is knowing the truth about who you are. If you have a deep belief that you are worthless, you must discover where that belief came from and why you believe it to be true. Once you know deep inside you with a direct and felt sense that you have inherent value and are fully acceptable to yourself, then you will free yourself from the need for positive judgment and approval from others 
and from your own judging voice. So we need to really start to look at what will bring me true happiness. What is really important to me? As things drop away on retreat, what is it I choose to pick up? What is it that will actually serve me on this journey of awakening that we're on? It's an important question to ask. The last of the right intentions, wise intentions, is that of harmlessness, which is really, um, the the Pali word is ahimsa. I love that term, non-harming, harmlessness. And it's exemplified by the practice of sila, or the ethical conduct. And again, we've talked about this. And to really see this practice of ahimsa as a gift that we give others. It's a gift, actually, a gift that gives twice. We give others the, the um, free, we give others a gift of fearlessness as they know that we're not going to harm them. And I think, I, again, I said at the beginning of the retreat how the animals here at Spirit Rock are different. Have you seen that yet? You know, the turkeys, even the birds. I notice as I walk up the path, the birds don't even, not the turkeys, they're kind of, you know, they got their energy going, but the, the little birds, the, the um, toeys and the juncos, they're used to us and they know that we're not going to harm them. The swallows that nest above the bathroom, even though people walk in and out of there every day, they come back and they nest there every spring. It makes a difference. It's a gift we give. And the gift we give ourselves is the gift of freedom from remorse, regret over our unskillful actions. And this is necessary for our mind to settle in meditation, as you've probably seen. So these precepts are just such great guidelines for us. And to see them as training precepts, they're not commandments, they're really places of exploration. The precept of not harming other beings, not killing them, not taking what's not given, not stealing, not harming others or ourselves through our sexuality, commitment to wise speech, saying what's true, not not coarse or harmful speech, and not clouding the mind with drugs or intoxicants, alcohol. These are all expressions of this kind intention towards ourselves and towards others. But this whole area of wise intention, of of renunciation, uh, goodwill, and harmlessness, Really, the positive expression of that is compassion. Because we see the suffering in the world, we see the suffering in ourselves, and we don't want to add to it. And as I started off by saying, this this, uh, understanding of dukkha, of suffering, of being to stand under suffering, like the waterfall, we also, in compassion, we stand with others under that waterfall. Because the heart opens as it does. And compassion is the natural expression, again, of the wise hearts. And our, our hearts are very tender now. I'm sure you know that. Just it's the poignancy, the tenderness of the heart. Recently, the last year or so, I've been doing a, um, an exercise program, getting more exercise, really feeling the value of that. And one of the things they recommend is wearing a, a, a heart rate monitor. And it's really being interesting to see that, just to get a sense of my heart and the work that it does 
to keep the body alive and, and you know how it can strengthen and grow. But the amazing thing to me is how responsive it is. I'll often wear, you know, I'll have the heart rate monitor when I'm not exercising, before or after. If it's just sitting around in the car driving somewhere, and you move your arm and your heart picks up. You just say, it's so responsive, the littlest thing. And the heart is right there, responsive, with the appropriate amount of energy. The compassionate heart is like that too. It's just so responsive. The tender heart just opens naturally as we recognize the amount of suffering there is in our lives and others' lives. It's just this natural expression. And it's said that the whole development of this path is the development of wisdom and compassion. And this is what I really see in these first two path factors. The wisdom is the right view that sees things as they are, that knows the truth of suffering and the end of suffering. And compassion is this expression of harmlessness, of wise intention, of compassionate action. It's the two truths, again, being, being woven through um, our practice. So I want to end with um, one of my favorite poems that to me expresses this union of the two truths, of how when we contact our experience directly, it does open up. The wisdom mind is there and knows the truth of things. It's called The Little Duck by Donald Babcock. It's actually um, an old poem, it's from the 40s, and it references a technology that was very advanced at the time where they would send a radio signal to a, a satellite and it would ping back, so that's what that reference is. Now we are ready to look at something pretty special. It is a duck riding the ocean a hundred feet beyond the surf. No, it isn't a gull. A gull always has a raucous touch about him. This is some sort of duck and he cuddles in the swells. He isn't cold, and he is thinking things over. There is a big heaving in the Atlantic, and he is part of it. He looks a bit like a Mandarin or the Lord Buddha meditating under the bow tree, but he hardly has enough under the eyes to be a philosopher. He has poise, however, which is what most philosophers must have. He can rest while the Atlantic heaves because he rests in the Atlantic. Probably he doesn't know how large the ocean is, and neither do you, but he realizes it. And what does he do, I ask you? He sits down in it. He reposes in the immediate as if it were infinity, which it is. That is religion, and the duck has it. He has made himself part of the boundless by easing himself into it just where it touches him. The people of the Middle Ages were more, more like this duck than we are. They took life as it presented itself and ran it up in spires of Gothic. They crossed few oceans, but they floated on the sea of time. And a cat is more like this duck than we are. We can radio to the moon and get back a pip for an answer, but a cat can make a hearth rug, a haven in the infinite, or launch four kittens into life in a cracker box by the furnace, purring with pride,
because she is tuned into tuned in on cosmic waves. I like the little duck. He doesn't know much, but he has religion. So let's just sit together for a moment. And repose in the immediate as if it were infinity. And we make ourselves part of the boundless by easing ourselves into it, just where it touches us. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.